Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're done with your Oreo. <laughs> yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, and, and do you really know what happened? Really the brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm mystery, murdery, thingy, thingy, thingy. Welcome to Mystery, Murdery, thingy. thingy. Yes. Yeah. The podcast. Are you following we, me here? Yes. Okay. Now, now we do it. Around the now same page. Really doing it. Okay. Okay. And great. who are you? Mario. My name is Chloe. Great. Should I go first? Did you want to go first? I always want to go first. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is week... yours a mystery, a murdery, or a thingy? Yes, it is a mur- murder mystery. So is mine. Yes, <laughs> we're both yes doing some murder. We're this getting week. into it. Yes. So um, this week I'm doing the killing of um, a man named Lazantha Vikramatunge, and um, he. I guess maybe. Instead of doing what I actually wrote down, maybe I'll just, like, tell you a little bit about him. Because I realize now it's I'm just, like, jumping into it. So he was a journalist. He lived in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is this island that's on the southern tip of India. These are all just, like, basic facts, right? So this is kind of the setting. Lazantha Wickramatunge, journalist, Sri Lanka, late 2000s. So, in fact, by 2009... This journalist, Lazantha Vikramatunge, knew that his end was, was coming near, was, was nearing. Um, like other sort of principled um, death defiers that, that we've talked about before, right? That, like we, This kind of like theme that keeps coming up, right? That he knew he was going to be killed one oh, day for so what he believed in, right? For what he was doing, um, for, the, for the work that he did. You know, he was kind of that kind of journalist in that kind of 
um, you know, unfortunate situation. And he actually um, wrote an op-ed for The Guardian just in the weeks before he died, anticipating that he was about to be killed. Um, and almost kind of literally, you know, spelled out what was going to happen. So I'm going I'm to read a few different and one much longer segment from it later. But I just wanted to read a little bit from that to start. Quote, and this is, so this is from Lazantha himself. Ooh. Quote, I want my murderer to know that I am not a coward like he is, hiding behind human shields while condemning thousands of innocents to death. What am I among so many? It has long been written that my life would be taken and by whom. All that remained to be written was when. Close quote. So I think that gives you a little bit of a flavor of who Lizantha was, right? Like he wasn't fucking around. Like, yeah. like he he was a serious person who knew he was in danger, knew he had an important task to do with his life, and uh, was like he was going to do it, right? Whatever anyone else said, he wasn't going to leave the country. He wasn't going to back down. He was just going to like do what he needed to do from his perspective, right? And he remained that way sort of his whole life, right? Unbowed in the face of um, whatever challenge he was facing or his impending death uh, in the end. Um, because by 2009, Lozantha and his family had endured just innumerable death threats and, and at least three serious attempts on his life. Um, one not too dissimilar to what ended up actually happening with his death and um, in an, another one, um, he describes it as, quote, um, his house was sprayed with machine gun fire. Oh, my God. So, but thankfully, I don't know if he wasn't there or what happened, but he survived those previous attacks. This pattern of, you know, abuse of, you know, threats and actual physical abuse led Lazantha's wife, Rain, uh, to flee to Australia with their three kids. Um you know, years before he was, he was killed. Um, and all of these, you know, literal and rhetorical blows that were cast upon Lazantha were, like I said, because he was, um, a journalist. He was, he was actually a very, uh, prominent leader in the journalistic community in terms of independent news organizations in Sri Lanka at that time. And for, for about 15 years before that, um, leading a paper called the Sunday Leader. Um, so after an eight-year career as a defense attorney, Lazantha decided he was going to actually go into journalism with his brother, Lal, who I'll also read some quotes from an op-ed that he wrote later. And from the very beginning, when they founded it together in 1994, Lal and Lazantha determined to make the leader, as it was affectionately known, into a, a really an honest and a critical purveyor of the news. And, you know, no... Um, what do they say, force or favor. You know, they're not going to hew to one political faction or anything like that. They're just going to tell it as it is and s stick up for the truth, right? Here's what's happening, period. Exactly. Which apparently is, unfortunately, not a lot of um, what people were or certainly are now getting in Sri Lanka. So after, um, you know, uh, uh, sorry, the... the um, I just wanted to give this, you know, kind of yeah, brief context of who who he was, what the what the um, news was like in in the, sort of the, those times, right? A little bit more. So Sri Lanka was in in 1994, and for many years before and after that, mired in this decades long civil conflict, civil war, 
uh, basically between uh, generally this violent ethnic resistance movement uh, of these ethnic Tamils, um, uh, um, led by this group called the Liberation of Tamil Elam, or LTTE, and the central government in um, Colombo, Sri Lanka, representing the majority ethnic Sinhalese, which is about 75% of the country. And uh, the roots of this conflict go back a long time. Um, it's complicated, right? I'm not going to go into all of that. But suffice it to say that the Tamils felt that the government was trying to take away their culture and their rights, and they felt that they had to violently resist. Mm -hmm. And the government felt that they had to suppress what they viewed as a breakaway, you know, territorial threat in the north. Essentially, the Tamils wanted to create their own country, right, or mm -hmm. at least their own okay. state, where they, you know, would have some autonomy, right? And we see this all over the world, obviously. Um, you know, but the government viewed them as terrorists, essentially, to be slaughtered. Um, and really, that's, that's, was, that was the mindset of a lot of the Sri Lankan governments. So at that point, or at least there was a point where it was, they started just ta tar start started targeting these people versus, like, the people who were just rebels? Yes, and it, um, as it got closer to 2009, that, that continued to, to escalate. Um, and of course that was reflected in the reporting of the, you know, of the Sunday Times as well. Um, I don't remember the, the number, but, you know, it was the tens of thousands, right, of people in the, the North and mainly civilians who were killed. Um, you know, whether that's because the government didn't care or because the Tamils, as was alleged, were using them as human shields, you know, it's, it's hard to know, right? But, but yes, no, there was wholesale killing of civilians and, you know, people in, in, um, during these times and, and it definitely got worse. It seemed over, over the course of the early 2000s. So, um, as as this was going on, Lazantha, like I said, was writing and was leading the Sunday Lear, and he wasn't really adhering to, to either of these groups, right, the LTTE or the government, and he was certainly criticizing both of them, but he especially criticized the government and sought to expose the corruption and the malfeasance of government officials, which they unsurprisingly didn't really like, didn't really uh, appreciate that, right, that he was like telling everyone what they were doing with the people's money, i.e. not using it for what they were supposed to be using it for, lining their own pockets. Oh. Again, we see this all over the world all the time. Sounds it's unfortunate. It's, it's unfortunately familiar, right? So um, I guess when you're pissing off the two parties, essentially fighting out a civil war, you can't really expect to live too long, right? It's It's morbid it's unfortunate but it's a reality but he really he really had a grasp of that he did is... and and you know lazantha spent 15 years doing this and he only made it to 50 years old um so he died young wow. um for sure and he had a lot of good years left and and it's and it was a, a huge, huge international story, and uh, there was huge international outcry literally all over the world when he died. Um, he was also a, 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 a sometimes columnist for the to for Time magazine. Um, he was he was known all over the world. You know, he was really seen as a leader of you know the sort of the democratic um, civil society in a way. In, in Sri Lanka. So just to give you a sense of the, the magnitude of, of his of what his killing, you know, meant at that at that time. Um, 
and you know in in the um the last few years of those 50 Lazantha like i said would seek to you know expose not only corruption but also the brutal tactics um like we're talking about essentially wholesale slaughter of civilians of the government of former and now in 2019 current um well uh yeah and i think i think he's the prime minister again uh, mahinda rajapaksa um so mahinda rajapaksa you can sort of he's an, he's an interesting figure right because um on the one hand as lazantha um describes him he when he came into power initially he was seen as um as if he was going to be a, a sort of liberal voice, right? A liberalizing force. But that didn't really end up coming to pass. Um, unfor- unfortunately, he, he ended up being a lot more, um, I don't know if authoritarian is the word, but, um, you know, certainly he, he didn't run the kind of government that people like Lazantha expected and wanted him to run once he actually did come into power. So um, Lazantha would also focus on his brother, Mahinda's brother, um, and, um, no, he's the, okay, so, Mahinda Rajapaksa is the current prime minister of Sri Lanka. His brother is, in 2019, the current president of Sri Lanka. His name is Gudabaya Rajapaksa. And at that, at that time, he was the defense minister. So at the time that we're talking about when, um, Lazantha was killed, um, that this guy Godabaya Rajapaksa was was the defense minister, and and he's going to become one of our central figures and and one of our central suspects, as you can imagine. So I want to define who he who he is and was. He was sort of involved um, directly in the kind of killings that we were just talking about of civilians. He was leading the um, the government, you know, ar- the army in their response to the Tamils. And he was also the one who may have been ultimately responsible for Lazantha's killing. So, um, as this is all going on, right, as the, the war is raging on, it, you know, through the late um, 2000s, um, and Lazantha was waging his own sort of conflict against corruption and oppression, um, the threats against his life continued to mount. And tragically, on January 8th of 2009, the last and sadly successful attempt was made on Lazantha's life. Um, and he, he ended up dying a few days later, I believe. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, this is kind of what happened. Quote, Eight helmeted men on four motor- motorcycles forced Vikram Matunga's car to the side of a busy street outside Colombo and beat him with iron bars and wooden poles. He died in a local hospital a few hours later. Close quote. And, and that says a few hours later, a, a lot, even of the basic facts about what happened, are actually a mystery, are actually in contention. Um, even to, to the extent that there are two conflicting um, autopsies, medical, medical examination autopsies, in which... Um, so so there's that version, right, where he was just beaten. Now, this is Lazantha's brother Lal describing what, what happened in in his own way. Quote... My brother Lazantha was brutally killed at 10.31 a.m. on 8th January as he drove along a public highway on his way to work. He was shot dead by eight men riding motorbikes and dressed in black with their faces hidden by helmets, close quote. 
And so there's this alternate version where, where he was actually shot to death. And those two conflicting medical reports, in one of them, there were visible gunshot wounds. In the other one, there were no gunshot wounds. So what does that say? <laughs> and why is that? You know, he, he, it just, it's, it's confounding. Um, so what was, though, not at all unclear, um, what was painfully clear, in fact was that Lazantha's death left Sri Lanka's media in a very sad state, um, metaphorically and, and literally. Um, and Lal described the mood sort of in, in the media after Lazantha's murder, quote, such systemic attacks by goons backed by hate speech from high-ranking officials in the army and defense establishment have spread a psychosis of fear across the media, close quote. And I, th I thought that was a really, I mean, a, an artful way of putting it, an effective, um, a psychosis of fear. That's, yeah, that yeah. was my main part, too. Yeah, no, obviously both of these men were excellent writers. Um, so, yeah, and he also d describes how the mindset of self-censorship, which had been present before, took real hold at this point. So that, you know, it wasn't necessary, necessarily, for the government to even do these kind of attacks, right? Because that, you know, that fear had been laid in. What is self-censorship? I don't know what that is. It means that the government doesn't, you know, literally tell you what to say, but they make it very clear what you're not allowed to say. Okay. Without having to say it officially, because there have been beatings, there have been killings, you know. Um, and again, this is um, uh, the kind of thing that happens all over the world, all the time, unfortunately. Go, go to the CPG cpg.org and you can read a lot about it um and i'm gonna read a um at this point the longer kind of extended quote from lazantha sort of predicting what would happen when he died and Ooh. and whom to blame oh okay i feel like we had we did we talked about somebody else before who was like okay if i'm killed here are, here are the suspects yes I don't know if it was, i'm not um, sure if this is the uh, chia vachia maybe know. And yeah, I'm not sure that that's the one that's sort of to me is um, reminds me of this one or, or they remind me of each other. Or I guess. Benazir Bhutto could. Yeah, Benazir I Bhutto. She definitely she did. Yes, yeah, she, uh, she was definitely like, yeah, it's probably going to be Musharraf, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, this is that that quote from Lazantha's uh, op-ed in The Guardian, quote, when finally I am killed, it will be the government that kills me. The irony is that unknown to most of the public, President Mahinda Rajapaksa and I have been friends for more than a quarter of a century. Hardly a month passes when we do not meet privately or with a few close friends present late at night at President's house. A few remarks to him would therefore be in order here. You have told me yourself that you were not greedy for the presidency. You did not have to hanker after it. It fell into your lap. You have told me that your sons are your greatest joy and that you love spending time with them, leaving your brothers to operate the machinery of state. Hmm. Now, it is clear to all who will see that that machinery has not operated so well. My sons and daughters do not have a father. In the wake of my death, I know you will make all the usual sanctimonious noises and call upon the police to hold a swift and thorough inquiry. But, like all the inquiries you have ordered in the past, nothing will come of this one, too. Mm. 
For truth be told, we both know who will be behind my death, but dare not call his name. Not just my life, but yours too depends on it. Close quote. Oh, that... Yeah. He won't give up a name? But I I think he is saying without saying goodbye. Your brother. That if, if you exposed your brother, you'd be in harm's way too. To me, that seems to be what it's saying. Or at least that, you know, he wouldn't be able to still, you know, be president, prime minister, whatever. You know, if if he stuck up for his friend. It's very profound. It it is, and it's 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 an almost Shakespearean also it's tragedy. a big accusation to, to say publicly well, when your death hasn't come yet. You know? But it, he he specified it would only be published after he died. Oh, that was like okay. the whole point. Yeah, um, and um, you know, sadly, the prediction of what he thought would happen of those sanctimonious noises, as he called it, that that appears to have been true. Because Rajapaksa, Mahinda Rajapaksa, did, in fact, come out and say that there would be a thorough and rigorous search. You know, that that he, too, mourned for his lost friend. And we've heard this before, right? Governments say they're going to do investigations. They just don't do them. And it was never going to happen here. The fix was in. Um you know, at at the beginning, for sure. And while there have been some arrests over the years... Um, now, 10 years later, no one has ever been convicted of this crime, and the one who actually ordered the murder has never even been officially accused. So the the investigation was essentially shut down in 2009 when this happened, um, and there was essentially a cover-up, um, until hope kind of sprung up when the Rajapaksas were defeated, and in 2015, Ronald Wickramasinghe and Mithrapala Sirisena came to power as the prime minister and president, respectively. So like many, many other unsolved killings of journalists in Sri Lanka, Lazantha's case was officially reopened and and some sort of investigation, you know, was at least done, started, you know, many years later. So not great, but something. And in the fall of 2016, a judge allowed the exhumation of Lazantha's body for re-examination. But I never really heard about the re- results of that. So I'm not exactly sure what that would happen with that exhumation or, or the autopsy that presumably happened afterwards. I, I did not see anything about that in my, in my sources. Um, around the same time though, according to, um, this organization called news first quote, a sergeant attached to the intelligence unit of the Sri Lanka army who allegedly kidnapped the driver of veteran journalist Lazantha Wakamatunge has been arrested, close quote. So this, this is kind of obscure. And it wasn't entirely clear whether this sergeant was like implicated in Lazantha's actual killing or what exactly. But this is just like another arrest that, that came up um, connected to it. They didn't say what it was for. Um, they just said it was for the kidnapping. So, yeah, it wasn't totally clear. And then in 2017, the biggest break, five arrests were made. And per The Guardian, quote, police in Sri Lanka have arrested five military intelligence officers on suspicion of assassinating Lazantha Wikramatunge, close quote. So these actually are, you know, connected to the killing. And these five men may have constituted a kind of quote-unquote military death squad 
that had previously kidnapped yes. another journalist named Keith Neuer. Oh, I wonder if they had a, like a list. That's what military death squad means to me. Yeah, like they no. were put together. But the question is, who was making that list? Ah. Who put them together? Who ah, told them to do this? There it is. Because even if even if these men were convicted of his murder, that still doesn't solve the mystery. Because who really did it? And, and why two autopsies? And why and that is a that is a huge mystery, of course. Um, so and like I said, the senior leadership of whatever this group was definitely remains a mystery. And um, that same Guardian article also mentions this other weird thing. So quote. A retired army intelligence officer was found hanging at his home in October, and this is October of 2017, with a note claiming responsibility for the journalist's death. But police have said they do not believe the claim and are treating the officer's death as a murder, close quote. So this could actually be a guy who was, was killed, I mean, a literal fall guy, right? Hanging guy. I mean, yeah. So someone may have killed him, left this note in him to try to th- just throw off the scent of the... It's like a Criminal Minds episode That's at this point. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's as creepy as one. I can tell immediately when you're watching Criminal Minds because I look at the TV and I get creeped out. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great show. So one is left to wonder if all of these fall guys are, like I said, simply a real distraction yeah. from, you know, a sort of red herring from the big fish, uh, if you will, that ordered you know, Lazantha's killing. And, you know, clearly his death had to do with his outspoken criticisms of the government, or it, at least it very much seems that way. I mean, he certainly thought that even before he died. Um, if so, then the suspects do narrow considerably. So apparently Prime Minister uh, Wickremesinghe in 2009 accused a former army commander named Sarath Fonseca of being the one behind this death squad, of being the one who ultimately was behind the murder of Lozantha Wukumatunge. And in 2011, former member of parliament, uh, the Sri Lankan parliament, Rajiva Wijasina, uh, claimed that the British High Commission in Colombo had shown him evidence bolstering the accusation against Fonseca. So he, now it never came out, but he claimed there was actual evidence. Fonseca, for his part, and many others, point the finger at, once again, current president Godabaya Rajapaksa. And one of those others pointing the finger at him is also Lazantha's daughter, Ahimsa Wakimatunge, who, along with the Center for Justice and Accountability, actually filed a civil suit in California against Godabaya for her father's death in April of 2019, this year. They allege, in part, that a certain unit within the Directorate of Military Intelligence and under the direction of Gurabaya operated as a dedicated force to harass and threaten independent journalists in Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, quote, on October 21st of 2019, the United States District Court for the Central District of California granted Gurabaya Rajapaksa's motion to dismiss, close quote. Um, now, the litigants have appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that's still Wait, wending does, its way through, what it, through the courts. does California have to do with it? That's simply the place in which they filed the suit. Um, oh. Yeah, and and why they filed it in that certain district of California, probably because they thought they'd have a better chance than other places. The notion of whether you can 
um, hold someone liable in a court in a third country for something they did in a different country mm. and involving people who were citizens and present in that other country is actually something that's been tested many times. And there have been courts in Europe that have accepted that, um, especially in the uh, context of like um, Operation Condor and Dina and stuff like that, you know, in the what happened in Argentina, the dirty war. So it's not unprecedented that something like this could you know, possibly, um, you know, could work, but we'll, we'll have to see. So, you know, perhaps eventually that suit will lead to some kind of resolution to the mystery, but, um, I wouldn't hold out too much hope, um, relying on either the Sri Lankan or American justice systems, um, to, to solve this mystery or present real justice. Because we know that's unfortunately not always the case, um, even here, even a lot of the times here. So I'll leave the last words to Lazantha's brother, Lal, because I thought he summed things up pretty well. So, quote, Once the war is over, hope should spring up in the breasts of the media in Sri Lanka. But will that be a reality? Could an establishment toasting the successful muzzling of dissent be willing to do an about turn to be liberal and value democratic norms enshrined in the Constitution? Will there be light at the end of the tunnel for Sri Lanka? Or would that light be another train coming the other way? Only the murdered Lazantha Wakamatunge, gazing at this island from beyond, might know what future there is for democracy and freedom of speech here. If the dream of freedom does not reach Sri Lanka now, Lazantha will have died in vain. Close quote. That's heavy. It's a heavy subject, and and I I know that's a heavy place to leave it, but um, that's that's what this guy was all about. Uh, Lazantha Wakmatunge, he he was about the heavy stuff. He and wasn't the real and the real that's stuff. What it seems like yeah, um, yeah. He wasn't here to you know play footsie with the government or with whomever, right? Um, so yeah, and I thought his brother summed that up really well. So, um, and, and again, who's to know what's going to end up happening in, you know, Sri Lanka, it's still very much up in the air. Um, so my sources were of course, Lazantha Wikimatunge and Lal Wikimatunge writing for the Guardian, um, the committee to protect journalists, their website just has a, a bunch of different stuff and, and, uh, uncredited articles and things, uh, Wikipedia, various articles, uh, news first and the center for justice and accountability website. That was, that was, that was a good one. Thanks. I, well, I told you I wanted to do the killing of a journalist because I think that there's so, I mean, and you read about that too. It's there, they very, very much disproportionately do not get solved. Like the, the mysteries abound in the killings of journalists. So this will not be the last one that I cover, but, um, I appreciated that you told me find one find one that really grabs you and this one did and and i think i'd even heard of it before but um i definitely hadn't looked into it and i did not know very much about sri lanka before this yeah. um and i'm glad that i looked into that too so it, it's a very very interesting um history I, um i was just reading a little bit of it it's, uh, but anyway What's the difference between the prime minister and the president over there? Do that you know? wasn't, yeah, that wasn't totally clear to me. Um, okay. 
what the way it seemed was it it might be a bit of a loose designation. Okay. Sort of in the way that it is in Russia where, you know, the the who holds the ultimate power is not necessarily the prime minister or the president. It's the the strong man, you know. Um but I, I honestly I'm not that well versed in the government of Sri Lanka either. So I may You're be, not? No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> I didn't look that far into that part of it. So. <laughs> okay. Mine's kinda short. I suppose. <gasps> Whoopsie. Well, you know, I'm kinda short, so I can identify. Boo. Is that a good short joke? No? Okay, good, cool. It's this thing on tough room, tough room. Very interesting. Okay, so on today's episode of Mystery Murdery Thingy, I have managed to grab one of the most high profile cold cases in the state of Georgia. This is the grisly double murder of Russell and Shirley Dermond. So 88-year-old Russell Dermond and 87-year-old Shirley Wilcox Dermond lived in Putnam County, Georgia. And so basically they lived in this super nice gated community called Great Waters. And it was on, um, it was on a lake, a big lake called uh, Lake Akoni, or maybe Akoni. Akoni. I probably think Akoni. Okay. Uh... Yeah, it was a beautiful place. Their house was, I think they had a million dollar house. They got married December 15th of 1950 and had four children and nine grandchildren. So Russell was the executive for a clock making company. And then after, and that was in New York. And then he arrived in Georgia. They settled in. And he acquired a small chain of Hardee's restaurants, so he made some good money over there, especially if you're the franchisee. Mm-hmm. Um, and then retired to the shores of Lake Oconee in 1994. So this was their retirement home, right? Where they chill, play golf, play cards, and be happy 88-year-olds. They, um, yeah, so Russell was a very avid golfer. He was a World War II veteran. Shirley was extremely intelligent she enjoyed playing bridge and doing crossword puzzles so let's talk about what happened it's pretty put on your seatbelt, mister okay <laughs> the last time russell durbin was seen alive publicly at least was on may 2nd of 2014 playing golf at the course near his home The couple accepted an invitation to a party at their neighbor's house. It was a Kentucky Derby party, because I guess something that's rich people do, um, to celebrate. However, they never showed up. They, like, RSVP'd and said yes that they were going, but they never showed up. And after not hearing from them for a few days, the, um, their friends slash neighbors, the husband and wife, went to go check on them. And the front door was unlocked. And they went in, and then it leads to a hallway where there's another door that leads to the garage. And Russell Derman was found in the garage behind their two vehicles. He was lying in a small pool of blood, and his head was missing. The So, some interesting details about this decapitation. The autopsy revealed that it was done post-mortem. Therefore, a cause of death was most likely some kind of head wound done by whether it was a gun, a blunt instrument, um, just somebody punching. As, yeah, there weren't any other marks on the body that 
were fatal. And it was a clean cut, which is always creepy, right? Ugh. Yeah. Dexter uh, style. Uh, Putnam oh. County Sheriff Howard Sills said months later, uh, quote, it was not the skill of a surgeon. Whoever, whoever did it took time doing it. End quote. The head has had still not been found when Sheriff Sills did the first press conference May 8th, which was a few days later. The entire house was searched, but there was no sign of Russell's wife, Shirley. So they, she was declared missing and presumed kidnapped. So the investigation. Sheriff Sills was the main investigator on the case, Howard Sills. He seemed like a really good cop. To be honest, like to be honest, like the Atlanta Magazine article does, uh, basically did this whole profile on him, and he was sworn in as sheriff in 1996 and has been reelected every four years since, and he has a quote no nonsense approach to criminals end quote. So he was also the investigator that took down, and I found this interesting, this cult that was active in the 90s and early 2000s called the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. I'd never heard of them before, but it was a classic cult. Charismatic leader, god prophet was this dude named Dwight York, and they built like these weird plywood pyramids northwest of Eatonton, which is a nearby town, and there was lots of people on on their compound all the time. He got together with some other investigators after hearing about accusations of child molestation happening within the cult. And they were right. Again, classic, classic cult sexual abuse. Quote, their case would become the largest prosecution of its kind in Georgia history. 209 counts in all with 13 victims named in the indi- indictment, though, though there were more, Sill says. In 2004, York was sentenced to 135 years in prison on federal charges that included racketeering and sexual exploitation, end quote. The... Thing that's most puzzling about this case um, is that we really don't know much about it. There's not much evidence. There's not much there. Hmm. So there's never really been any solid leads despite the investigation. They canvassed the neighborhood and no one saw anything. They tried to get surveillance footage from the guard shack because they're like this com- they're this gated community. So I assume, I'm not sure how those work, that you check in and say, hey, I live here, I guess. I don't know. Um, I would imagine they probably vary highly in how easily they can be penetrated. That's I mean, what I would imagine. Yeah, uh... Uh, so what happened, funny that you say that, there was a storm a month earlier that, that knocked their power out. Mm. And once they got their power back on, nobody noticed that the the surveillance cameras were never turned back on. They oh, were geez. never functioning. And nobody noticed. So they didn't have... That's just fucking bad luck, right? No CCTV. So they they, no CCTV. I mean, how could you ever solve a single crime without CCTV? You know what? It's impossible. Not possible. Not possible. Hence this story. Right. This story is the evidence. Right. And yeah, never been any solid leads. So they also noted that apparently the visitors, when you're like a visitor and you don't live there, they scan your license plate. But those weren't being recorded on a regular basis like they should have been. So they, so any really anybody could have driven in undetected. 
However, we don't even have any evidence that the perpetrators came in by car in the first place because, remember, they're on a lakefront. Sure. Gathered. So what they did, they gathered all the locals to the clubhouse to clue them in on what was going on. Uh, but, you know, to scout the locals as well. Behavior. Look at that. But nothing came of that either. On May 16th, 10 days after her husband's headless body had been found, Shirley Derman's body was found by two fishermen in Lake Oconee. She was floating face down. She had been um, weighed down by concrete blocks that were tied to a rope around her legs. The water goes down 46 feet, and they discovered that her body had been weighted down to the bottom of the lake. And then, um, due to decomposition, her body swelled up. The, the the ropes broke and she bobbed to the surface. Mm. And that's why she showed up. Because they did search the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, she was fully clothed and there was no sign of sexual assault. The autopsy showed that she also had died of um, a head injury. Blunt, but this one we know it was blunt force trauma to the head. And, uh, and she was dead when she was placed into the water. And they also searched the lake for russell's head but russell's head's never been found so it's just never been found wow at least i didn't read anything about it ever being found yeah that seems weird to me that he he was decapitated but she wasn't she was weighted down in the lake but he was left in the house like maybe one maybe he was the target maybe she got in the way that's yeah no that's true i mean it's more it definitely seems like more force you know, was applied to him, so. But it seems personal, right? It takes a lot of work, yeah, first decapitation of all. seems personal, yes. And she was moved. She was, yeah. She, her body was moved. Which doesn't seem necessary. Right? If you leave the, that, right? I mean, if the point of putting, of weighing her down and putting her body at the bottom of the lake was to hide the crime... I mean, going outside was such a risk. Wouldn't it have been better just to hide it inside and leave yourself? I don't know. Again, trying to understand the mindset or logical processes of a murderer is a fruitless errand. <laughs> but, you know, you Some try. people are really good at it. Yeah, yeah. I think they have this show. What is it called? Mind of a Killer? Um, what is it called? Murder Brain? What is it? I can't remember. Murder Brain. <laughs> that sounds like... It would be like a terrible kids show. Yeah, that does. On Nickelodeon. Yes. Criminal Minds, obviously, is what I Thank you. Okay. Yes, yes. Anyway, theories. And, you know, this is another one of those mysteries with lots of ridiculous theories because there's not much information to go off of in the first place. So, they had four children. Four, four grown adult children. So, you'd think maybe it was one of the kids. However... They were given polygraph tests, which doesn't mean anything, but they passed. And really nothing... I didn't read anything else about the kids. Um, That's it. All Mm. I read was that they took a polygraph test and passed, which I assume they must have had pretty solid alibis in that case. Because I really... There was not a lot to find out about any of the kids at all. Um... Keith Derman, the son, um, talked to Joe Kavik Jr. from the Atlanta magazine. 
and here's a quote from him, quote, it's bad enough to lose both of your parents at the same time, but in the way it happened, we could have been devastated if they'd just had a car accident, but to have it all happen this way, and then just compounding and compounding and compounding with the details, and then the fact that they haven't even caught anybody, they don't even have a clue, we don't even know why, end quote. Which is, uh, I think that's the weirdest one for this one, right? The motive. Was this a thrill kill? Um, no motive. So was the motive just opportunity? Like hmm. some fucking psycho who was like, yo, what if I killed these people right now? Um, but there was no sign of forced entry. Um, their house was spotless. They were wealthy people, but nothing was stolen. It's possible that the murderer slash errs, uh, Sheriff Sills, thinks that this could have d- been done by two people. I was thinking that earlier. Yeah. I was like, it seems like there are two people. It could be two people. Like, it just seems so different what happened to Kim as opposed to what happened to her. To me, it makes more sense that this one person, and maybe targeting him, says, okay, you take care of her and then take care of her body, and I'm going to take care of him. I don't know. Yeah. Bizarre. And, yeah. No sign of forced entry or anything like that. And it's possible that they arrived by boat as the house was on the lakefront and everybody had access to the lake. The lake itself is 18,000 miles long. It would have been lake. Then again... Wait, you said 18,000 miles. You meant 1,800 miles. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> you. You didn't mean that the lake is, uh, like, many times the length of the United States, You know States, what? Right? I don't think that's right. <laughs> I don't think it's 1,800 miles. It's That's probably not right either. That's it's probably, probably like wrong. 18 miles Isn't or something. Isn't it like 2,000 miles from Chicago to L.A.? Okay. Are you, are you looking it up right now? No. <laughs> okay. That's not what I'm doing. Um, anyway. Then again, incidents where the murderer was a stranger to the victim is rare. And note that they were also, you know, he was de- decapitated, which is like we talked about, a lot of fucking work. Uh, and we don't even know if Shirley was killed in the lake or not. She probably wasn't. So maybe she was moved. And so how was she moved? Was she alive? Did they kill her by the lake? How did nobody see anything? That's also... Uh, where were all these people? We don't even know... Uh, approx- well, we probably... They probably did have an approximate time of, of, of death. But I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. <laughs> But whatever time, I mean, they were in a residential area. There would have been people around all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Was it for money? The couple, uh, they were well off, but they weren't obnoxiously rich. Their net worth together was around $1.5 However, someone could have easily targeted them thinking that they had something of value, so maybe they, you know, were killed for something that they ended up not having. Um... Here's a quote from the sheriff, quote, I still think it was some sort of extortion, robbery of some sort that the Germans didn't have or didn't have ex- didn't have or didn't have access to something that somebody wanted. I still believe there's more than one perpetrator involved. I still believe that Shirley Derman wasn't murdered at their house. But most importantly, I still believe that somebody knows about this and they need to tell us, end quote. Was this done out of revenge or out of anger? Because this is one of those, it seems more personal. Uh, it's not some, It's not like a gunshot wound, it's quick. However, there, uh, I did read in 
the Yahoo News article that there was gun... No, no, no. In both the Yahoo News article and Wikipedia that there was a there was gunshot wound residue on his collar, on Russ's collar, but we... I don't really know any much more about that. Uh, maybe if there if it was a bullet wound, he could have hid the head to not trace the bullet? Question hmm. mark? I don't know. Hmm. Um, however... Yeah, none of their, and like I said, none of their kids or relatives came under any suspicion, but their oldest son, Mark, had been murdered years before. Uh, On his 47th birthday in the summer of 2000, Mark was shot and killed in his car while in downtown Atlanta. It was a drug deal that went sideways. But his killer's in jail. Hmm. So is it possible those are connected? People don't really think so. Um, Maybe it was a hit, but again, who would send out a hitman to kill two rich old white people? Were they caught up in drugs? Like, maybe? Doesn't seem like a hit. Hitmen don't decapitate people. True. Unless you'd need to, like, prove who it was. Ah. That's but, some cartel shit, Yeah, though. that that's if it's, like, somebody... Yeah, like, the head of another cartel. I not, mean... I don't know. Maybe he was living some kind of double life we don't know deep, about. Deep, deep shit. No, I feel like somebody would come forward sometime. It's been, right. it's been, it was 2014, so it's been five years, so maybe something will come forward, but, um, yeah, they, they didn't have any, like, extreme hobbies or any sketchy friends. Like I said, Shirley played bridge, liked crossword puzzles, and Russell liked to golf. Normal retirement stuff. So that is the mystery of whatever this mystery was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> What were their names? Shirley and Russell Dermond. So the the mystery of the killing of Shirley and Russie, Ru- Russell Ru- Russell Dermond. Dermond. Yeah. yeah. Octogenarian millionaires. Yeah. Absolutely wild. Strange. There is another case like this. I don't remember their names, but they were found like strung up on their fence by the pool. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so fucked up. That's another one. Maybe I'll cover that one too. Hmm. Anyway, that's it for me. Yeah, well, thanks for listening, y'all. Yeah, thanks um, for listening. We super appreciate it. Yeah. Um, do you have any weird... Happy holidays. Weird shit in the news. Merry Chrysler. I do have weird shit in the news. Do you have weird shit in the news? I think I just found some. Why don't you tell us about yours? Mine is... Um, this is from Huffington Post. The uh, article is by Josephine Harvey, and the <laughs> the title is... Nobody knows why there are pigeons in cowboy hats roaming Las Vegas. And this is pretty cute, all right? So somebody's putting cowboy hats on pigeons in Vegas. And this was just last week. So last week, there are lots of reports, and they're, like, colored, like, cowboy hats. Like, it's, like, who, how, why, are the pigeons okay? Um, oh, God. Quote, Pigeon Rescue and Advocacy dr- Group, Lofty Lofty Hopes, whose slogan is, a pigeon positive movement is working to find some answers. End quote. Did you know Pigeon Rescue and Advocacy Groups <laughs> exist? Because exist? I didn't. I did not. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> cool. I guess there was one in, like, a red hat that someone took a picture of. Um, they... Tr- they tracked him down. They named him Cluck Norris. There's one called Coolamity Jane. There's a pink hat. She's still roaming out in the Wild West. And cool. there's reportedly a brown-headed 
pigeon on the loose uh yeah so like the video went viral and it's i'll tweet it to you it's <laughs> pretty cool like a fucking <laughs> like what there was a rodeo in town but um they had nothing to do with it <laughs> okay <laughs> well mine is um is christmas themed so you'll appreciate it <gasps> christmas it's, yes and it's from the AP Odd News, and uh, it says, A 141-year-old fruitcake is a Michigan family's heirloom. That's nasty. So, when you're when you're presented with some fruitcake this holiday season, just think of that. Um, and <laughs> the, this weird family. <laughs> they're not weird. I guess they're a little weird. Um, so, but Julie Ruttinger, she thinks it's a great thing. And she's the great-granddaughter of Fidelia Ford, who actually baked the thing in 1878. <laughs> and apparently, uh, Fidelia had this tradition of she would bake, um, you know, one of these cakes and, and then wait a year, let it age for a year, and then they would eat it the next holiday season. And when she died, they felt it was not appropriate and therefore, you know, to eat the cake, and they just kept it. All the way until now. And <laughs> they still have it. And it's a hundred and... 41 years later, and Fidelia Ford's legacy is still very much intact. And uh, uh, apparently the former uh, keeper of the cake um, actually ate the keeper of the cake, indeed. uh, The keeper of the cake, indeed. um, Actually ate a piece of this with um, uh, somebody on, on The Tonight Show. Ew! Said it tasted like wheat. So... There's your holiday cheer. First of all, fruitcake doesn't taste good anyway. Right. It's chunky. It's weird textured. Just wait 141 years. Maybe it'll taste better. Nasty. Okay. Well, thanks for listening again, <laughs> you guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and we'll see you next year. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Last of the year. Oh, and, so funny. and we inch ever closer this to 100. This is why we don't. We try not to make this a comedy podcast because... Don't expect us just to be funny because we're. I feel we're just like we're people. charming and conversational, but right. I don't like. I don't. I like, don't if somebody asked yeah. me like if I was a comedian, I would say no. absolutely no. not. I don't pretend to be a comedian, but I think we we like to talk about interesting stories in fun, interesting ways. And we hope you do too. So thanks. <laughs>